acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock, our redeemer. Back when I was in elementary school, I was a lot like I am now, just like a lot smaller. Uh, I was just as big a dork then as I am now. And as a result, when you're an elementary school kid and you're a big dork uh, who likes talking about history uh, to his fellow elementary school kids, uh, you don't have a huge group of friends. <laughs> so, uh, but I did have a few really close friends, and one of them actually lives now here in Houston, a guy named Josh Owens. And when we were in uh, third or fourth grade, we decided to start our own club. Uh, and we came up with the cool name, the Firebird Club. That was us. So it was me and Josh, and Josh's younger brother and one of his friends. All of us lived within a block of one another. And then another good friend, uh, Pete, and we would go into the woods that were nearby. Now, I grew up in a community that uh, was very similar to the memorial area, and there weren't that many woods that we can go in. But the one small bit of woods, of course, it seemed very big for us because, again, we were small. And we would go, and we would traipse through the woods and have a grand old time. I mean, this club... Uh, for especially kids that were a little bit less social. This club provided uh, a sense of unity, a sense of purpose. Uh, It was truly, for us, a great thing. Think of that man who was born blind, feeling the cold water from the pool wash over his face. The mud that was crusted there begins to dissolve away And for the first time in his life, he begins to see something. Imagine what that would be like. To go your whole life in darkness and then all of a sudden be flooded with light and color. I hear that people who are blind uh, have particularly uh, well-developed other senses. So I can imagine that our own sight would even be magnified by, again, what he would be hearing, what he would be feeling, what he would be smelling at that moment, something seared in his mind. And this miraculous thing, this great thing, uh, is so wonderful that people can't believe it. This is a guy who spent his life begging, and now he was walking around with a whole new future laid out before him. He could actually do other things. He wouldn't have to rely on begging in order to find his bread to eat. And he goes to other people, and they're so incredulous seeing this man. They ask, is this really him? And he's like, yes, no, it's me. It's me. I can now see. And then he goes and he's brought to the Pharisees. And this amazing thing happens. And one of the Pharisees is like, but did this happen today? But today is the Sabbath. So clearly this was a sin. So the Pharisees actually had this debate back and forth. Is, is the man who healed him a sinner because he was healing on the Sabbath? Standing right in front of the man who now could see for the first time in his life. The Firebird Club changed significantly when I'd gotten to fifth grade. Because you see, in fifth grade, we transferred elementary schools from Schofield School to Upham School. And for a reason that I can't quite figure out, the Firebird Club became the cool thing to be a part of. So we're talking all the cool fifth graders, uh, the ones who were graded four square, that little you know, ball that you played with, uh, the game you played with a rubber ball, those 
uh, you know, with their slick back hair and their Wayfarer sunglasses, all the cool kids, they joined our club too. All of the males in both of the fifth grade classes became enthusiastic members of the Firebird Club. And we had to have some activities to do, though. So we ended up having, uh, we ended up deciding to have these water gun fights. So we started to have these epic water gun fights, and we picked out a great enemy, the fourth graders. And so it was the fifth graders versus the fourth graders in water gun fights with these old super soakers. This is just when the super soaker uh, sort of water guns came out, and we were tossing water balloons. And I remember watching one of these epic fights and then seeing it become violent, seeing the fifth graders and fourth graders actually getting into, uh, you know, hand-to-hand fighting, um, and some of the kids getting hurt and going off to their parents, and I just remember being so struck by the tribalism of even fifth graders and fourth graders, that we could create enemies out of this whole group of people whose sole distinguishing characteristic from us was that they were a year younger. almost something out of the Lord of the Flies. And of course we see our tribalism today. I think few things can be more tribal uh, than our politics. It's as divisive as I've seen. And I think that one of the more amazing things about our political discussions today is just how tribal they've become. I think about uh, the critiques of President Obama about his vacation time and his expenditures on his vacation time, um, about his critiques of him playing golf. In fact, by the very person who holds that office now, who now plays more golf, takes more vacation, and spends more money on it. And yet, it's amazing how those same voices that were so loud before aren't coming out and critiquing him for it. You see this tribalism coming out. Or this past week, you know, we even see it in our healthcare debate. Healthcare is a major thing. It affects the lives of tens of millions of people. This is, a, this is an important discussion that we need to be having about how we can provide healthcare in the best way we possibly can. And yet so much of the discussion wasn't about how we can provide the best possible system. It was either rejoicing at the defeat of the American Healthcare Act or uh, people wringing their hands uh, that it's not harsh enough or not you know, pure enough by some test. You see this tribalism just... It's hard to miss. The man born, man born blind, the passage doesn't just stop with that interaction with the Pharisees. There's that next scene where they go and they knock on the door of his parents' house and they drag his parents out and they say to him, they're like, is this really your son? And this, the atmosphere must have been full of fear and antagonism because the parents they say well yes that's our son and yes he was blind but don't ask us any other questions and the text says explicitly because they were afraid of being cast out of the synagogue word had gotten around but the person who healed him was Jesus and Jesus was already a persona non grata so here you have such fear this tribalism becoming so intense that even a man's parents to speak up for him. And then they pull the man in, this man who just had this miracle happen to him, and they then attack him again. And they say, well, we know this Jesus is a sinner. 
We know this is the case. Don't you think so? And the man's like, listen, the only thing I know is that I used to be blind and now I can see. I don't know how that can't be from God. And then there's this argument where they're saying, well, you know, we're, we're disciples of Moses. We're not disciples of this guy. And that scene ends with them casting him out. His only crime being that he was the subject of a great miracle. It can happen to us. When I, worked, when I lived in Ames, Iowa and worked at the Ames UCC Church, there was a very dedicated member named Woody Hart. Woody uh, is a uh, entomologist at Iowa State University. Now, I didn't know what an entomologist was before I met Woody, but apparently they study insects. Uh, and that when you're dealing with agricultural stuffs, the study of insects is actually pretty important work. And Woody was someone who was one of the very few members of the church who was a Republican. Now, that church was a lot more partisan than this church. I know for some of you that might be hard to believe, but it's true. <laughs> that church was a lot more partisan than this one. And the head of the county Democratic Party was a very involved member of the church. And again, Woody, uh, uh, Woody would come to the men's lunch group, which had about a dozen people there. And some of the other members, uh, who were wonderful people, who I loved to death, would be saying these little pot shots at him and constantly needling him about his political stuff. And Woody's one of these guys who seems like he's got a very thick skin, but these comments actually made an impact. And I remember the day when he came to me and he said, John, I'm going to leave the church. And his wife still stayed as a member, but he left. And thankfully, I said, well, I hope it wasn't anything that I said. He said, no. He said, it wasn't anything that you did, but I'm just tired of all the comments. When I was in college, I uh, was a member of a fraternity, what we called uh, final clubs. And, I mean, frankly, these final clubs weren't all that different, uh, but we tended to magnify the differences. And my junior year was the one year I wasn't rowing, and so I got very involved in our rush season what we called the punch season, so where we're trying to get new members in. And so there was this intense competition among these different final clubs for getting these different members in. And I remember how judgmental I was that year against these other members of these final clubs, where I would meet someone, and depending on what club they were in, I would immediately put them in a box and say, this is who you are, and I would then see them as you know, my antagonist. And I'll never forget, a couple years after graduating, <clears throat> I ran into a guy named Dave Ross who had been a member of a competitive, a competitive final club. And again, Dave Ross, I remember having this big like, yelling match with Dave when we were undergrads over you know, the rush season. And I remember having this conversation a few years later, and we had a fantastic conversation, and I sat back and I said, Dave is such a great guy. How was it that I disliked him so much? What was it that drove that? The interesting thing about the Pharisees is the Pharisees were a reform movement within Judaism at the time. The establishment with the Sadducees, they were saying that a worship has to be in the temple. And that that's that the temple cult, the sacrificial cult, you know, if you've read through Leviticus, all that stuff, taking animals and chopping them up and putting them on a fire as being a way to atone for your sins, that temple cult was controlled by the Sadducees and their establishment. And a lot of people saw the corruption of that, the collusion with the Romans, and were heavily critical of that. Among those critics were the Pharisees. And as opposed to the temple cult and the sacrifice, the Pharisees proposed lifting up the law of Moses as being the guide for religious life. 
They saw that as the way forward, a way to get beyond this corrupt temple cult and get back to the sources, get back to the real stuff. And so when they see Jesus healing on the Sabbath, this is a violation of the Ten Commandments, this calls into question the essence of what their reform movement's all about. And this guy, Jesus, he's, he's taking things in a very different direction. They believe wholeheartedly in this. This is their faith. This is the future of Judaism. This is the future of their relationship with God and where they should go. And so, yes, they want to make sure they strive for purity. It makes sense. The Congregationalists did the same thing in Massachusetts in the 17th century. Human beings have an innate capacity for group loyalty. Evolutionary biologists argue back and forth about to what degree this is uh, as a result of natural selection, Uh, but there are certainly a large group of people who argue that it is. That human beings survive because of this tribal tendency. It's in our DNA. That early on, those who could actually work together and sacrifice their good for the good of the whole, actually their children and their group survived better. And then as society and civilization developed, that was the same thing. The civilizations that Uh, could come together, that could cooperate, that could sacrifice for the whole. Part of that is also making an enemy of the other were the ones that were able to survive. This is a tendency that was hardwired within us. And also we find great joy in groups. We find great authenticity in being a part of an organization. So we tend to celebrate those groups. This past week, I was reading a book uh, by Max Bazerman and Anne Tenbrissell called Blind Spots. And the book addresses just this issue. How do we deal with the blind spots in our ethics? Where we do something that's not right, but then we're great about justifying it. And they lay out something that other people lay out, lay out too. He, they, they, they talk about system one thinking and system two thinking is the way they talk about it. So system one thinking is our, our intuitive actions, our emotional actions. The vast majority of the things we do in life are based on instinct, are based on habit, uh, are based on emotion. Our system two thinking, our rational thinking, then oftentimes lays a justifying sort of coat over that. That's usually the way that we function as human beings. So even though we might not always act morally, we have a great capacity to then justify those actions after the fact. My high school headmaster every year during our exam period would always remind us that uh, the smarter you are, the better you are at rationalization. And so these ethicists, when they were looking at this, they said one of the key moments to being, one of the key ways to be more ethical is actually to know when that's, to, to, to identify the difference between that system one and system two thinking and to try and identify and, and anticipate when your emotions will come up you're able to identify that in advance, you are more likely able to use your system two thinking to be more rational and therefore more ethical and moral. So for instance, let's say you know you get really worked up over the New England Patriots. Then, you know, when something about the Patriots comes up and they're caught in some sort of scandal and you race to try and defend them, you can say, well, you know, part of this is an emotional response. Maybe this isn't the most rational thing. The same thing is true in politics. Some people I know, like these things pop up in their newsfeed and they just instinctively share them, even though they're total nonsense or not very well thought out. I try and sometimes fail to only post things that are well thought out. 
But you can tell the emotional response is there. Sometimes I have to shut off my computer because it gets me too worked up emotionally. When that's the case, it's a good indicator that your system one thinking might run the risk of taking over your actions. All of us fall into this. It's important to be aware of it. But is it enough? When we look at our story in John 9, and one thing that's remarkable about it is how level-headed the man born blind seems to be. Here's a guy who's being attacked, attacked openly, expelled from his religious community. And yet, in what's seemingly relatively calm language, he keeps defending himself and defending Jesus, being like, listen, I was born blind and now I see. I can't make it any clearer than that. He doesn't lash out against them. He does keep a rational head. And yet, some of these bad things still happen. Now, there's a book that I, another book that I mentioned before, and this is probably a lot of books to be laying on you, but I uh, can't resist. Uh, another book that I mentioned before that I want to come back to because it's relevant, and that's Jonathan Haidt's book called The Righteous Mind. The Righteous Mind, the subtitle is Why Good People Are Divided Over Religion and Politics. Haidt is a uh, behavioral psychologist, uh, and he looks at especially moral, the links between morality and psychology. What Haidt discovered is this, that all of us in our moral lives have their five sort of foundations that he calls them to our moral lives that are all a result of our biology. Five different things that govern our moral thinking. One is our instinct to care for others. Another is our, our sense of fairness or justice. Another moral foundation. Another moral foundation is a sense of loyalty. Loyalty versus betrayal. Loyalty is a core moral foundation. Another is authority versus subversion. Authority as being, yes, I'm going to respect authority. That's a moral foundation. And a fifth one is sacredness. Sacredness as in there are certain things that are sacred that are other that are holy. It could be, say, the American flag. Uh, some people get really emotional in response. That's, it's immoral to break it down because of the sacredness of, that, of what it represents. Uh, sacredness comes up in our society all the time. What hate proposes is that people who are liberal tend to lift up the care and fairness foundation and tend to neglect some of the others, or at least they're not as important. Whereas people who are conservative, they value care and fairness, but they also value loyalty, respect for authority, and sacredness in a way that a lot of liberals do not. It's his proposal. It seems to make sense. And he says, the reason why it's significant is because when you're disagreeing with someone about something very personal like politics, it's important to bear in mind that behavioral psychology might be playing a role, not just the arguments, not just the words that are coming out of your mouth. So often we find ourselves talking past people, talking past one another, and part of his proposal is try and ask yourself what else, what underlying things are going on here such that this person cares about this issue in a way that makes no sense to me. Why is it that some people are believing that it's moral to pass the American Health Care Act, you know, which would take away insurance for a lot of people? Some people see that's the right thing to do. And I could say, this just makes no sense. The care person in me is like, this makes no sense. Hate's response would be, ask them why they're arguing for it, because there's some sort of moral foundation to it, and you need to figure it out. 
Otherwise, we can't have any discussion at all. The end of our passage, after the man is expelled from the synagogue, Jesus finds him. In a way to reassure him, uh, talks to him about Jesus being the son of man. Don't worry, you're out of the synagogue, but there's some sort of other future going forward. Then he has this great line about blindness and sight. And what's interesting is that there are a few Pharisees there that are trailing him. You can always tell there are a few Pharisees that are really curious to really know about this Jesus. They want to know more about him. They're not willing to just dismiss him. And so they're close by and they overhear him. And so then they stand up and they say, well, are you saying that we're blind? And Jesus has a great line that he gives back to them. He says, if you were blind, you would not have sinned. But now we say, we see, your sin remains. Here's Jesus saying one of the basic criteria here is being able to admit our own blindness. If you think you see fine, your sin will remain. But if you can actually see your blindness, then maybe we can find a path to not sinning. I think particularly in the climate that we're in, it's a message that we all should take to heart.